Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you so much for being with us. We have a lot to talk about on the show, so I want to get right to introducing uh, the panel. Kevin Riley, editor-in-chief of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, my partner on the Thursday show. Hey, Kevin, thanks for being here today. Always great to be with you, Bill, on uh, Thursday as we're still, I think, just... Trying to recover from that election season, aren't we? <laughs> I, think, I think a lot of the reporters at your place and ours are still <laughs> trying to recover. That's for sure. Stephen Fowler is with us as well. He is GPB's political reporter. Stephen, thank you for being here. You said right before the show started, you are dropping, for the time being, the final 2022 midterm edition of your podcast, Ballot Box, uh, Battleground Ballot Box, right? Yep. It's a 30-minute epic, about 4,000 words when you read it on the page, and it takes a look at how we got here and where we're going. All right. It's available sometime this afternoon, uh, wherever you get your podcast from, Battleground Ballot Box. And we're always happy to be joined by Professor Andre Gillespie, Professor of Political Science and Director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute for the Study of Race and Difference at Emory University. Andre, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I think uh, the big story, Kevin, to start with is that after having gone through now two successive U.S. Senate runoffs in a matter of just uh, under two years, um, we have now got the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, calling on the legislature to end runoff elections. He says um, he says what we already know. George is one of the only states in the country with a general runoff. We're also, he goes on, one of the only states that always seems to have a runoff. Uh, and then he says, no one wants to be dealing with politics in the middle of their family holiday. It's even tougher on the counties who had a difficult time completing all of their deadlines an election audit, and executing a runoff in a four-week period. Kevin, we think that the runoff elections, caught, we know they cost tens of millions of dollars this time and last time for the counties involved. Yeah, and who'd have thunk it? Uh, Brad Raffensperger, our Republican Secretary of State, uh, calling for uh, a major, major change in how Georgia handles elections. And actually being an old softy, talking about holidays and things like that. I mean, we're more used to Raffensperger relying on data. And, you know, I think uh, at least I've heard at least one person on the show refer to him as being kind of nerdy through the years. But he has really gone out there in a hurry in a big and bold way. Andra, we know the history of runoffs in this state is uh, one of racism. In 1964, the legislature passed the first uh, bill saying we must have runoffs in Georgia. It was introduced by Denmark Groover, one of the good old boys in the state legislature back then from the Macon area. Um, he had, in 1958, lost an election um, despite the fact that he won the white vote, he blamed his loss, <clears throat> excuse me, on the Negro bloc. That was a term he used that came in and voted against him. Uh, and in fact, in 1990, DOJ said that the runoff system in Georgia was fraught with uh, uh, was was based in a, a racist uh, concept. 
So, I mean, and part of that is the idea that if you have competing white candidates and a black candidate running against each other and a plurality system, if a black vote is a cohesive block um, and they're a large enough population in whatever jurisdiction you're running in, they have a possibility of actually being able to win. In fact, this is how black uh, mayors actually started to get elected in the late 60s and, and early 70s. So if we look at places like Cleveland, for instance, or Chicago, actually, with Harold Washington, um, you know, it was because there's a split in the white vote and then the black vote uh, sort of consolidates around the black candidate and is able to pull off, pull off a victory. So, you know, on the one hand, that is certainly a reason to get rid of the runoff system, particularly for general elections. I think there's a different argument to be made potentially for keeping it in terms of primary elections, especially when you've got large fields of candidates. Um, but, you know, on the downside uh, for Democrats in particular, uh, if there hadn't been a runoff in 2020, um, David Perdue would still be a U.S. senator. Um, and uh, so, you know, it would have been a very, very different scenario. So most of the time, whoever's in first place tends to win. There have been some scenarios in the past where, uh, you know, under this new system, Jim Martin could have been a U.S. senator and beaten Saxby Chambliss in 2008. But we've seen it go both ways. And so, um, you know, I think what this, you know, means if it goes away is that there are going to be some competitive contests where Democrats in, in, in close races um, may benefit from libertarian spoilers actually allowing them to kind of get a plurality of the vote. Well, we should point out, uh, Stephen, that although Purdue would have won uh, back in the 2020 without a runoff, uh, Raphael Warnock would have won without a runoff because he finished in first place in the general election by just a hair's breadth over uh, Herschel Walker. But, Stephen, we have not yet heard anything from legislative leaders. We've got a new speaker. We've got a new uh, lieutenant governor presiding over the Senate or from Governor Kemp about this. And we also know that there are all sorts of ideas floating around for ways to still, uh, well, for alternatives to the actual runoff system we have now, right? Right. And so on the the Warnock special election front, it's not clear that a runoff would have meant he would have won since that was a special election. And there were so many people and it's possible the top two, given the way the code is, would have still had to go to a runoff, much in the same way that you have a primary that would go to a runoff because it's not uh, two or three candidates running against each other. It was like 20. But in 2022, in the general election, it was Warnock uh, oh, against right. Walker. Oh, right. In 2022. Yeah. Sorry. I was thinking about the 2021 I, I but, but jungle. Let, yeah, go ahead. But that's just, that just proves the point. There are way too many options out there, way too many elections out there. There are so many different things that can be done in Georgia to change the rules. The simplest one would be the person that gets the most votes wins. That's what you see in many other states for general elections. Um, another option that Georgia has played with in the past is uh, raising the stakes or raising the parameters to go to a runoff. So, like, if no candidate gets above 45 percent, then it goes to a runoff. And that would take a lot, and that would take a lot of third-party support. Another option that has been toyed around with is potentially ranked choice voting, which would mean people just vote once, they rank the people that they want in their order of preference. And so uh, obviously the libertarian gets the least amount of votes in the situation. So then they go to the second choice on the libertarian ballot. Mm -hmm. And so if the second choice was Warnock, Warnock would get some votes. If it was Walker, Walker would get some votes. Or if it was nobody, nobody would get the votes. That's something that third party groups have been pushing as a way to 
end these expensive runoffs around the holidays. But the real thing is, is that there are a lot of different options out there, and it's not clear which one the elections officials want or the lawmakers. Um, Kevin Riley, by the way, your political uh, uh, writer, uh, Patricia Murphy, reporter and columnist, has said, let's not talk about ranked choice. Let's call it instant runoffs. It's a much more positive expression. Right. Good for Patricia. <laughs> she, you know, she, she's a, a hard a marketer and really helps us in that way. And I have to thank Andre for making that reference to my hometown. She's right. Cleveland, Ohio was the first major city to elect a black mayor in 1967. And part of the reason was was in Ohio, whoever gets the most votes wins. That's the way it works. And so I was confused, actually, for a couple of years when I when I came to Georgia. But <laughs> let's talk a little bit about the ranked choice voting. So, and I, I kind of want uh, others to weigh in here. So I go into the voting booth and I pick the, the candidates I prefer in order of my preference. And therefore, the argument is, is if there's no winner, we go to everyone's second choices. And then the argument is that person who ultimately wins does have the most support among the electorate. Mm -hmm. They may not be the top winner. And then the other argument, right, Andre, is that this – people believe it forces more civil discourse in campaigns because there's a lot of advantage to finishing second if you're not a first choice. Am I right about that? Yeah, so I mean, we saw this happen in the New York mayoral uh, election last year. It was the first time that New York City used this in their elections. And so what you saw actually was some of the candidates running together uh, where people would say, hey, vote for me. But if I'm not your first choice, then like, you know, then they would have like the partner there that would be like, pick me for second. And so, uh, you know, there were folks who were hoping that sort of by – uh, working together, they could at least try to uh, perform as optimally as possible. Didn't necessarily guarantee a win, but you want people to choose you for second if they if you're not their first choice. And so that may lead um, to people uh, uh, that, that that may lead to more conciliatory uh, dialogue. There are people who argue that it actually also leads to more centrist candidates doing better. So it, it takes away some of the power uh, of the extreme. Um, in doing that. Um, and so in particular, um, in primaries uh, as well, where based on sort of median voting, right, uh, you have this truncated electorate that tends to be more ideologically extreme than um, than other groups, or then the, the general electorate will be like there's a tendency to pick an, an, an ideologically extreme candidate who may not fare that well in a general election. So in primaries, actually having this type of thing might actually end up moving more towards a consensus choice than having the extremist candidate be able to win, you know, in states other than Georgia um, with, uh, you know, just, you know, a small plurality of the vote. Um, Stephen, um, I got to get to a break in a second, but one quick note, and I'd like to pick it up on the other side. Um, there are people who argue that 50 percent plus one is an important uh, 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 margin for a victor to have because it means they have majority support. If a candidate wins with 45 percent of the vote, presidential candidates do it, have done it routinely in uh, recent decades. It, it means that they are operating without the support of the majority of the people who voted in the election. And there is a downside to that. Well, but if you look at it this way, fewer people tend to vote on the runoff. And so you have the possibility where, yes, they didn't get 50 percent plus one the first time, 
But if they get 50% plus one of a much smaller pool of people, then that's even less representative well, that's right. of yeah. the voters' choices. Yeah, yeah. all right. Um, we're doing a two-day pledge uh, drive here at GPB Radio. Many of you already know that. Uh, so we're going to take a few minutes to turn this over to our pledge team. Uh, you already know what we'd like. We'd like you to support us. If you already do, thank you. We're very grateful to you. If not, we'd love to have you keep Political Rewind moving forward, and here's how you can do it. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Emory University, Professor Andrew Gillespie, GPB's political reporter, Stephen Fowler, and Kevin Riley. Kevin Riley joins us, even though, Kevin, I am startled by the fact that you don't, you couldn't care less about the fact that on Sunday we are going to see an epic matchup between France and Argentina, Lionel Messi and Kylian Mbappe playing for the championship of the World Cup, and you're like, I don't care. Are the are, is my football team on the air? Well, I think that's a little <laughs> overstated, Bill. I, I'm not following the World Cup as closely as you are, and I'm not quite the soccer fan you are. But I would be surprised if I don't enjoy watching that Good. World I'm Cup very game. Glad. Good. I'm glad we've gotten to you. All right, let's uh, move forward. Um, let's talk about Stacey Abrams for a couple of minutes. We haven't heard anything from her, to the best of my knowledge. Uh, no one in the Georgia media market or print reporters here have had a chance to interview her since uh, she lost the governor's race. But um, she did appear on Good Morning America uh, the other day. She was there primarily because she has a new children's book out, and she wanted to talk about that. But, of course, the anchors of the show wanted to talk to her a bit about the election. Um, Andre Gillespie, I'm going to play you a little sound from that interview and see what you think. She was asked about the fact that black turnout was not what uh, was needed, what she needed to win this race, and asked what happened. And here's what she said. While Georgia saw a dip in its turnout, it was still much higher than we've seen in years past in midterm elections. And so I think it's always important to not just learn your losses, but learn your lessons. And one of the lessons is we have to keep talking to voters who don't see themselves in the electorate, who don't hear their issues discussed by candidates until the last few days. It's like being invited to the party at the very last minute when you know everyone else got their invitations months ago. Andra, I, I guess I leave that it's a very open-ended question. Uh, she certainly did, in fact, pitch her campaign to a lot of black voters, black men particularly. Uh, but comment, if you would, on what her feelings are and then the bigger question about why black turnout didn't uh, give her the margin she needed. So, you know, when I look at the exit poll data, I think that a lot of the hype and, and discussion and concern about black men kind of abandoning Abrams in droves was just not proven by the data. Mm. Her share of, of, of the, uh, you know, uh, black vote amongst black men uh, was, I think, a percentage point lower than Raphael Warnock. So and both of them sort of reflect gender gaps that we know exist within the black community in terms of Democratic voting. Um, that being said. Um, I also cannot ignore the fact that as a proportion of black registered voters, fewer blacks showed up in 2022 than showed up in 2020. I mean, uh, and then 2018 when she ran for governor the first time. 
Um, and so um, I, I'm not quite sure exactly, um, you know, what, what, what she's talking about there. I also can't ignore, and I know that this is all voters, this isn't just African-American voters, that if I look at the absolute number of votes that Abrams got um, across all 159 counties, she got fewer votes in I think about 140 of those 159 counties. So um, that suggests a couple of things. I mean, it's certainly not a bad get out the vote effort, um, but it suggests that there was a lot of room for improvement and or people weren't buying what she was selling. Um, and so I understand that that's, you know, you know when you, especially when you put your heart and soul into running a campaign, that's hard to kind of accept when things don't turn out the way that you do. But the numbers are, what they are. And I think I have to say this, um, you know, and this is something I've been thinking about sort of writing about, like once I'm done grading with finals, it was really interesting to look at black voter turnout in the general election and then see it spike mm. during the runoff election because of increased effort and investment and, and, and mobilization there. And to wonder, especially in the context of the of the Senate race, that hmm, if that had happened in November, perhaps we wouldn't have had to go to a runoff. And I think that there has to be, you know, a come to Jesus moment on that one, too, um, because it's like people do know how to mobilize. And so why does it have to happen in the clutch? Um, and so there may be something about voters to think about. But I think there also has you have to look inward from a campaign standpoint and ask whether or not you did everything you could have possibly done to mobilize. Yeah, voters. thank you for those comments. Stephen, weigh in on this. I mean, I, I think. You've mentioned before, uh, but, you know, I, I think one of the takeaways from Abrams' campaign manager in a rather lengthy thread was that uh, Stacey Abrams post-2018 and pre-2022 made it to where Stacey Abrams could not win in 2022. And I do think there is something to that, uh, maybe not in the way that the Abrams campaign intended. Like, I think what we saw in the election and in the election data in the midterms is that Brian Kemp was a very popular governor. And there were people that voted for Brian Kemp that maybe in the past voted for Stacey Abrams. But I think in talking with voters and looking at the data, there really wasn't as much of a compelling case for people to show up for Stacey Abrams and to challenge the status quo of Brian Kemp because of both the way Brian Kemp handled things as governor the first four years, but also as what people saw Stacey Abrams as the messenger. And I think the difference between Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock kind of make that clear. Both of them have been in the spotlight, but they take on different roles. I mean, Raphael Warnock was in Washington for the past two years, but the perspective was that Stacey Abrams was the one that was less in touch with Georgia. Uh, and so I think it, it, it was interesting to see that you know, I think Abrams maybe created a self-fulfilling prophecy there where all of the work she did after 2018 to prepare for 2022 did make it much harder in this universe where Brian Kemp was popular and all of the other policies to show up that way. Well, Kevin, we can uh, rehash 2022 and there will be continued discussion about it as, as people like an Andre Gillespie crunch the data. Stephen Fowler will do it, too. But part of it is what is Stacey Abrams future? She was asked on the show whether she was going to run for office again. And she said she very well might. She's not going to talk about it in more specific specificity. You know, the question is, 
was this election a learning lesson for her that maybe it's time for her to focus on being, you know, a very popular uh, writer, speaker, whatever? We're going to watch how that unfolds. Well, yeah, and she's not sitting still. I mean, in today's jolt, uh, Patricia Murphy, or Patricia Murphy, points out that Deadline Hollywood says she's going to be producing a music documentary for Discovery Plus with Selena Gomez. Wow. So uh, the idea is... Uh, I'll just read it. Their documentary, Won't Be Silent, went into production yesterday, and Abrams said the film is a celebration of the artists who have contributed to bettering the world through their timeless music. So she's on to other things already. Yeah. Andre, the one thing about uh, us—Stephen mentioned Lauren Growargo's long uh, Twitter stream uh, in which she talked about, in a rather— I don't. Angry is probably too strong a word, but certainly in in a way that jarred a lot of other Democrats out there, uh, trying to explain why she lost. The one thing that really struck Democrats uh, as being problematic was essentially saying that Stacey Abrams was responsible for Raphael Warnock. Um, getting him into that Senate race, and and I think that there were people who found that slightly offensive. So, you know, there is a universe of uh, voting rights organizations, voter mobilization organizations, um, a constellation of African-American women activists who have for years been trying to um, increase voter turnout, increase voter registration, and get people to turn out to vote. Um, Stacey Abrams with the New Georgia Project deserves a lot of credit Mm -hmm. for um, her organizational efforts and outreach activities. But I also, you know, I don't want to forget Black Voters Matter. I don't want to forget the Georgia Coalition for the People's Agenda um, and other groups that have been in the trenches doing this for a long period of time. Um, And I also acknowledge that, you know, Raphael Warnock succeeded Stacey Abrams at the New Georgia Project. Um, And so, yes, their their, uh, uh, fates are linked to each other. um, but I think you have to kind of tread very carefully on saying, I made you, um, right, because it, it, it has the potential to kind of backfire in terms of what the optics of it are or how that kind of sounds tonally um, as a result of it are. But um, and I'm not saying that, you know, Lauren or, or Stacey was actually sort of suggesting this, but when you sort of suggest that the universe revolves around you. Um, that's also going to be the type of thing that encounters resistance. The truth is, is that this was a community of, of activists and, 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 and scholars and people who cared about this, who were all helping for years to kind of like till the soil to make the idea that Democrats could be competitive in the state of reality. Yeah, I, 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 both of those things can be held together at the same time, that, that Stacey Abrams and Lauren Groargo had a lot to do with increasing participation for Democratic candidates, but they didn't do it on their own. As you point out, lots of other organizations out there uh, making that same effort. Stephen, I thought it was interesting, and I think I saw it in the jolt this morning, that uh, on the Senate floor yesterday, Lindsey Graham, who spent a lot of time down here uh, trying to get Herschel Walker elected and attacking Raphael Warnock for being a, uh, a partner with Joe Biden, they ran into each other, and uh, according to the reporting, uh, Lindsey Graham gave Raphael Warnock a fist bump and said, you're hard to beat, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, there's no way of ever knowing, but it's possible that maybe the 48 people that are most excited about Raphael Warnock winning are the 48 Republican uh, senators <laughs> that might have had to work with him. 49, I should say. Um, 
All right. Let's do this. Uh, we've got one final pledge break that we need to get to in today's show. And, and I want to do that and then come back and spend some time talking about uh, the fact that we are now seeing texts that were exchanged between then uh, 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 Trump uh, chief of staff Mark Meadows and People in the Georgia legislature, members of the Georgia congressional delegation, in the secretary of state's office that tell us an awful lot about how people were feeling uh, during the time that Donald Trump was challenging the legitimacy of the 2020 presidential race here in Georgia. So I want to talk with the panel about that. Uh, But let's go to our pledge break again. We're done for the year after this. This is the last four minutes or so that uh, you're going to be asked if you can support us. I know a lot of you out there say, well, we're doing our best. We're trying to support you. Uh, We want more conversation, less pledge drives. But you know what? Uh, The more people who join us in supporting us, the less we have to do of that. But here's how you can, if you're not a supporter, become one now. Welcome back to Political Rewind. And again, thank you if you are a contributor to GPB Radio and if you've helped uh, Political Rewind. We appreciate it. Um, Kevin Riley, Stephen Fowler, Andre Gillespie with me uh, for uh, today's show. Uh, So Kevin Riley, uh, Talking Points, just uh, released a batch of Mark Meadows, former White House chief of staff to Donald Trump, uh, texts with many people. There were thousands of them. They came apparently from the January 6th committee, uh, which had subpoenaed them. And they include some uh, really interesting texts from people here in Georgia, uh, Congressman Rick Allen being uh, one of them, uh, Marty Harbin, state legislator, in uh, being another one. And they reveal that Allen and Harbin particularly, had some loony theories to share with Mark Meadows about how the election was stolen. Right. Our David Wickard and others have been combing through these to find the, the Georgia references. But it really it, it's and, and uh, the story's out there uh, today in the printed newspaper and on our website. But um, I mean, just reading some of this stuff, it's like you, you've got to be kidding me. I mean, they're they're making reference to this bizarre theory about Italy uh, being involved and foreign governments and all these other things. But what's most important about it, I think, for Georgians to know is these folks who are our, representative, our representatives, our elected officials, got right behind this movement and they need to – explain themselves, which so far they've refused to do. So, Stephen, let me just uh, quote from a couple things and then get you and Andra to weigh in on this. Here's a, a text that uh, Rick Allen, Representative Rick Allen, Congressman Rick Allen from Evans, Georgia, uh, wrote at one point. He wrote a string of texts to Meadows, but but uh, he said he'd had inside information from DOJ uh, about people who were very concerned about the rigged election. And here's one of his uh, quotes. From what I can tell so far, looks like this is a high-tech and foreign government collusion with Democratic Party to guarantee Biden would win, which explains that the president was hundreds of thousands of votes ahead until they figured out what they needed, he said in one message. And then he said, as I said, this is wild stuff. And one of the things he put forward in that was uh, that Democrats had stolen driver's license information and used it. Uh, apparently to uh, create 
create uh, uh, voters who didn't exist to vote for Joe Biden. So this is indistinguishable from just the nuttiest stuff that everybody has that uncle that posts on Facebook. But this came from a sitting member of Congress and not just one sitting member of Congress. And it's really concerning that the people who want elections to represent us at the government know absolutely nothing about how they work. I mean, if you look at the story that he sent, it was a more than decade old story about driver's licenses, which has nothing to do with voter registration or people voting or things like that. Same with, I mean, some of the other texts from one of the other state lawmakers here represented something about a conspiracy about Italian servers used to meddle with the election results. And it's really concerning that on the spectrum of attempts to overturn the 2020 election, these things really don't make it near the top of what some Republicans did and tried to do. But it's still concerning because they're because it wasn't so extreme that these things have kind of fallen by the wayside and didn't get picked up and covered. But it just goes to show that it's just it really is a problem when you have a large number of sitting politicians in powerful positions that, A, don't understand how their own elections work, and B, were willing to do like, you know, Facebook conspiracy posts to get things right. So, um, so Andra, uh, State Senator Marty Harbin, uh, sent messages to Meadows as well, as I've mentioned, and Kevin referred to Italygate. He talked to uh, Meadows in the text about this conspiracy theory that if Italian defense contractors manipulated the election results via satellite, we've heard this come up, of course, a, a number of times before, including in the January 6th committee hearings. Um, and Harbin also kept Meadows informed, according to Talking Points, uh, about the efforts to overturn Biden's victory in the Georgia General Assembly. Um, we know there were members of the Republican Party in the General Assembly who tried to get a special session call to overturn the uh, uh, duly elected electors for uh, Joe uh, Biden. So we've heard all these theories in one form or another for many, many months now. But this coming out now reminds us, as, as Kevin and Stephen have pointed out, that we have some people in elected office here who are willing to embrace the most outrageous theories because winning matters more than anything else. I mean, so, yes, I will 100 percent agree with that. And, you know, I'm going to mix metaphors here, but this seems like it's a combination of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks <laughs> um, and grasping at straws at the same time. Um, and so people were just looking for information that confirmed the things that they wanted to see, whether or not they actually made sense. And I think what's really disturbing about this is the fact that, you know, these are folks who hold positions of public trust. These are people who presumably have better access to information than you or I do. Um, and yet they are willing to um, let their uh, uh, they're, they're willing to let their uh, own of biases and own disappointments dictate their interpretation of information that should be readily available to them and then to use it in kind of a demagogic fashion to kind of gin up uh, support or a frenzy um, in service of what it was that they're doing. And so, you know, at this smacks of very irresponsible leadership to me. Um, the fact that you'd be willing to do that in order to stay in power um, and I think voters need to ask themselves, uh, are, are these the types of leaders that you actually want to see, like people who can't 
be discerning in terms of the information that they take in. You'll just go find anything on the internet that confirms what you want to say because it helps to advance your own personal interests. And I think that's the thing that's actually been really disturbing about what we've seen happen in the country in the last few years. Bill, I'm just going to be blunter, I think, than Andra has been. And let's, uh, so Representative Marty Harbin. State Senator. I'm sorry, State Senator Harbin, a Republican of Tyrone, Georgia. Yep. He he also joined uh, a number of Republicans who, who, uh, pl- he got behind that Texas lawsuit mm-hmm. that was out there, and he and he joined others who filed a court brief. I think we should ask. He says the following to Mark Meadows: Mark, if this is true, it would be a game changer for Georgia. We need to act quickly. God's wisdom, my friend. All right, look, people who are elected to office take an oath to uphold the laws and the Constitution. I think that Georgians deserve an answer from this elected official. Why did you do this? Um, I think that's a point uh, well made. Um, Stephen, we also have to remember that when the uh, Senate convenes in January, it will be led by the Lieutenant Governor, Burt Jones. He was elected, obviously, legally. He is the duly elected uh, president of the Senate. Uh, but he also was one of the fake electors uh, and he did as much as he could to advance the theory that the presidential election here was stolen for Joe Biden. Right. I mean, the state Senate was really ground zero in Georgia, the legislatively, for a lot of the conspiracies and misinformation about the election. And only a couple of the state senators were temporarily punished for the actions that they took. And now that Burr Jones has been elected, um, some of the ones that were stripped of powers and uh, standing before have now been welcomed back into the fold and are on the committee on assignments and will probably be given chairmanships and things like that. And so it, uh, it, it just remains to be seen what the longer term impact of that is. I mean, especially within the Republican Party, you know, the person in the governor's mansion and the people in power over in the state house, which is arguably at times the more powerful chamber, don't look too kindly on the election denialism. So we'll see how much power the state Senate and those that continue to push the false election fraud claims actually have when all is said and done. They might be sidelined by their own party. Andra? So, you know, we focused a lot on candidate quality when we look at sort of Herschel Walker's performance, um, you know, in the Senate race, and, and rightfully so. But I think we also forget that relative to the other Republican candidates, Burt Jones actually proportionally did did worse. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I think part of that sort of relates to this controversy, but the issue of is why wasn't that enough? And, and here is where I would say, you know, Alan Abramowitz's theory of negative partisanship actually matters a whole lot here. Right. That our partisanship is so calcified that uh, people would be willing to vote for a member of their own party who is engaging in activity um, that is, you know, potentially insurrection adjacent. Um, And uh, but because you can't bring yourself to vote for the other side. Right. Because that would be a fate worse than death. Right. You're actually willing to go along with somebody who was arguably compromised going into this leadership position. I think that says a lot about who we are as a state. And I think that, you know, this should be a time of reflection. And it's not just a time of reflection for the elected officials, because I can't control them. 
I can't control voters in the state, but it's like voters, we do actually have some leverage here, which is we don't have to elect these people. Yeah, that's really a good point. Um, you know, let's take this to Washington. Kevin McCarthy is so determined to become Speaker of the House that he is willing to court some of the extremists like Marjorie Taylor Greene. I've said on this show several times, I think she's being very shrewd in deciding to support Kevin McCarthy for the Speaker's uh, uh, office, unless, of course, he loses. We'll see what happens to her then. But in the meantime... So she's going to get uh, uh, plum assignments on committees, uh, despite her outrageous rhetoric as recently as the other day, saying that January 6th would have been a successful insurrection if Steve Bannon and she had been in charge, because at least they all would have been armed. Um, But Stephen, uh, she will have a major role to play when Republicans take over if McCarthy becomes speaker. And I, I assume she'll have some power no matter who the speaker is. Well, at the end of the day, uh, the House Republicans these next two years of Congress are about to experience a supercharged version of what House Democrats did with the narrow majority. You know, there are, you know, 10, it's basically a 10 seat difference, I believe, that the House Republicans have as their margin. And part of Kevin McCarthy's problem is that you can count to 10 by starting off with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, or you can count to 10 with more moderate people like uh, Georgia's Drew Ferguson or Austin Scott. And the problem for the speaker's gavel race is that that 10 starts with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Andrew Clyde and other more hardline members of the caucus. And so he's going to have to do a lot more to cater to the more extreme people that won't vote for him than all of the more moderates that will. Kevin, uh, we're almost out of time, but I want to, I think, emphasizing what you said and then what Andre said are really important as we leave. Voters have the choice. These are people who are elected by the voters of their districts, and the voters have a choice of who they want to see in those offices. There's nothing predetermined about it. Absolutely, and I I do hope people ask themselves uh, if— I understand politics and the divisiveness and all of that, but when we get right down to it, um, if we can't depend on people who are in office to honor our Constitution and our traditions and our laws, we are going to be in trouble. You know, that gives me a chance very quickly to promote a show we're doing next week. Stacey Schiff, the uh, Pulitzer Prize-winning author, has got a new book about Samuel Adams, a really wonderful biography about a a founding father she says is too often forgotten. And she quotes him early in the book as saying he he believed with his whole being that America would succeed because people would elect moral, civil leaders. And that's one of the things we'll talk to Stacey Schiff about, actually, on our show next Tuesday. We're out of time today. Professor Andre Gillespie, always a pleasure to have you on the show. Stephen Fowler, congratulations on another season of Battleground Ballot Box. And Kevin Riley, my friend, thank you for being with us again today. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy. I'm going to throw you back to our pledge team.